Hello everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Biology Bobbles. Uh, I just wanted to take a little foreword before you listen to the podcast to apologize for the decreased audio quality. Um, it was recorded in person, and uh, given the current pandemic, uh, we were both wearing masks. So uh, there will be a little bit more fuzzy speech than you might be used to, um, and than I would prefer. But uh, it's still a great episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. Hello and welcome to Biology Bobbles. We are back. The world is whack, and much to my ego's dismay, our guest today is a genius. Presenting Professor Adam Chippendale. How are you this wonderful afternoon? Hey, Thor. Thanks for having me in today. I am well, other than the usual complaints we all have these days, uh, but healthy, excited to be here, and uh, you know, passionate to talk about two of the most successful parasites, or the most successful parasites in the history of life on our planet. Wow. All right. Big words. Now, did you expect, as a biologist, for your work to be connected in any way, superficially or otherwise, to Karl Marx? Never in my wildest <laughs> dreams. <laughs> okay, well, I think everyone will agree by the end of this episode how apt this quote of his is with regards to our topic today. <clears throat> History repeats itself. First is tragedy, second as farce. Oh, wait. Oh, God. I am so embarrassed. It appears in my hurry and excitement to record this episode with you. I shelved up my notes for this episode of Biology Bobbles with my notes on the U.S. election. Oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> what I meant to say is, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Now, in light of this, I'd like to remind our listeners of everyone's favorite cellular organelle, the mitochondria, our faithful powerhouse of the cell ready and waiting to seize the means of ATP production. <laughs> As a large part of our audience is not, in fact, uh, biologists, may I ask you such a basic biological question, what is the mitochondria and where does it possibly come from? Yeah, so I've, I think I've given away the first part of this. Uh, the, the mitochondrion is an ancient parasite, uh, a bacterium, which uh, came to uh, came into an endosymbiotic relationship with another prokaryotic. That's an organism that doesn't have a nucleus. And uh, it, was, it was a parasite, a bacterium that made its living by invading other cells, reproducing, breaking out of those cells and getting into other cells. And over, through some amazing uh, act of serendipity, the parasite somehow became domesticated by the host. And to this point in time, uh, and that, that event has enabled the evolution of multi-celled life, so really life as we know it. Uh, without that incredibly improbable thing happening, we would not have multi-celled life. No plants, no animals, nothing but maybe some mats of bacteria to look at in terms of multicellularity. Wow. Uh, I know this isn't a scripted question, but this is just something that, uh, as you said, it popped into my head. Is there a way, uh, is there any way we can know or say, was it the mitochondria domesticating us or us domesticating the mitochondria? Yeah, it's hard to say if, it, if the mitochondrion was enslaved and enfeebled or if the mitochondrion has colonized and succeeded. But what you can say is that that union has made the mitochondrion the most successful organism on the planet. Wow. So given mitochondria's bacterial origin, as well as the fact that it is to this day um, still retaining its own DNA, uh, what would stop it from going sour and taking more than its fair share and having a proca proletariat uprising so to speak yeah so that actually does happen and there are numerous episodes instances in which mitochondria rebel in which mitochondria 
uh, cheat on their hosts. Uh, so they're bacteria, they're intracellular, they are capable, just like our microbiota, that's another endosymbiosis. It's an endosymbiosis which is usually favorable, but occasionally you get some bad microbiota that take off and make you sick. And by the same token, we have uh, the possibility for mitochondria to cheat within cells, to proliferate, to not be faithful powerhouses of the cell, but rather favor their own reproduction in competition with others because within the cell, natural selection is happening, just like it's happening between organisms with multi-cells. Well, well, as the hermetics would have me say, as above, so below. Are there any exceptions to this general law of symbiosis, um, such as, or perhaps I should say, exceptions to this general fil de loi? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the answer is yes. I mean, things aren't always hunky-dory. Whenever you have self-replicating entities uh, in close contact with one another, there's always going to be some chafing. There's always going to be conflict. And and endosymbiosis, endosymbiosis is no exception to that. In an endosymbiosis like this, the endosymbiont can uh, rebel against the host cell. And when this happens, you can get uh, various pathologies occurring. Uh, the the Fil du Roi example is one that uh, is local to us in that it's uh, all a story about New France and the King of France sending young women to the New World to become brides. Uh, with those young women came uh, a surprisingly high incidence of an otherwise rare disease, labor's neuropathy. Mm -hmm. And this affects the optical system and makes people go blind. And as it happens, it primarily makes men go blind. Males are much, much more frequently affected by this syndrome. And that's one example of a mitochondrial-based uh, problem disorder because it happens that those mitochondria function just fine in almost all female cases, and they are male-specifically defective, and it leads to blindness. Wow. And th that would be, to, to clarify, that's because the, um, the mitochondria are entirely maternal, correct? Yeah, the mitochondria are passed down through the egg. They are denizens of the cytoplasm, so they're part of the cell outside of the nucleus, and they do not get transmitted by sperm in all but a very few exceptions that we know of, they are transmitted exclusively maternally. And so that matrilinear transmission means that they are actually only under natural selection to favor female function. They're under no natural selection to favor male function. And when they screw up and do things that uh, disable males, there's no ability to counter that by having mitochondria that are not defective uh, outcompete mitochondria that are defective. Hence, it becomes the role of nuclear genes, the genes, the normal genes, if you like, the ones that get transmitted mm -hmm. down as chromosomes, to uh, compensate for the mitochondrial um, pro problem that's occurred in males. And in fact, uh, that's one of the leading candidate hypotheses for why the mitochondrion has become genetically enfeebled over the billions of years of its existence. Mm -hmm. It's lost genes to the nucleus. The nucleus has made up for those lost genes. And that is believed to have been one of the driving factors is this thing called the mother's curse. Mm -hmm. And that is the male-specific defects that occur and can't be checked by natural selection on the mitochondrion itself. The nucleus has to come to the rescue and uh, correct for those things. So would that be almost almost safe to say in, in analogy to our procatariat, proc <laughs> however we're going to try to say that, yeah. uh, uprising, <clears throat> that... Um, the nucleus taking in uh, some of the mitochondrial genes and, and replacing, um, having, making sure that they're the ones that have the, the function gene, functional genes of the mitochondria 
is that almost like disarming the mitochondria to prevent it from being its own autonomous entity? Yeah, that would be the outcome of that process. But by making the mitochondrion absolutely dependent upon the nucleus for its function, uh, the nucleus thus uh, means that the mitochondrion without those compensating factors from nuclear genes, can't rove around, can't infect other cells and function autonomously like the parasite it once was. Mm -hmm. It becomes bound to the nucleus, and hence its fitness is usually one and the same as nuclear fitness. It thrives when the nuclear genes express a successful phenotype and produce lots of offspring with mm -hmm. those mitochondria being carried along. So usually it's harmonious but sometimes that relationship breaks down. Okay, so that's a pretty good transition to my next question. Um, why is it that these kinds of diseases are not uh, either eliminated easily or all there is? Um, that is to say, if they can pass easily and discreetly from generation to generation without considering the males, why is it that they aren't the norm and haven't taken over the world? Why is it that they aren't the norm? Well, I mean, the thing is that uh, sexual organisms need to have the two different mating types and populations. If, mm -hmm. you, if you disable one sex, the other sex becomes more valuable, in a sense, in the eyes of natural selection. Mm -hmm. So by sterilizing males, which happens in many instances with mitochondria that go awry, they, they, uh, the nucleus has to restore function to the male. As males become rarer and rarer, they become more valuable in terms of selection. So natural selection invents a way to correct for the problem from the nucleus and bring males back into roughly equal uh, numbers of fertile individuals in a population. So that would be to say that once this uh, feminist bacteria, this, this mitochondria, starts selecting exclusively for females, then it would be highly selected for in the males to present these nuclear genes that can counteract the mitochondria deterrence of the males? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you use the word feminist here, and I agree with you in the sense <laughs> yeah. that mitochondria uh, are always favoring, or any occupant of the cytoplasm is always going to be favoring uh, matrilineal transmission, maternal function. Mm -hmm. They're always going to be cheering for, for, for females in, in, in populations. Uh, but I don't think to be a feminist, you have to be a male hater. <laughs> no, no. That's... <laughs> and mitochondria are male haters. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, it's, it's, I, I, agree and fully understand that the feminist movement is completely about equality and not <laughs> female <laughs> superiority and exterminating all males. Um, it, it's entirely superfluous and just fun to say feminist bacteria. I'll, I'll be explicitly clear about that. Now one thing that particularly piqued my interest in your lectures was that it wasn't just this anti-male selection, so to speak, passed down from generation to generation, blessing female offspring and cursing, so to speak, the males. Um, to cite a 2018 paper by authors Jin Sung Park, Ryan L. Davis, and Carolyn M. Su, while more than 90% of Parkinson's disease cases lack evidential family history or a definitive genetic basis for their Parkinson's, the forms of Parkinson's disease that are familial are mostly the results of mitochondrial dysfunction, which does not discriminate between sexes. So I'd love to hear you explain, if you may, why it is that mitochondrial disorders seem to be most concerned with neurodegenerative diseases, and uh, if it isn't too broad of a base to come at you from, why is it that Parkinson's appears so late in life if this is the case? Are mitochondria, in some cases, just ticking time bombs, waiting to go off and devour our brains? <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of moving parts in the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Among them would be the, uh, the rate of cell division of the tissue concerned. Mm -hmm. So you asked about you know, why neurodegenerative in particular. Nerve cells, brain cells, these are cells which cease to divide 
and mm-hmm. are very, very long-lived. Now, the problem is that for mitochondria, their selection being on the same side as the host cell is locked up in helping the host cell replicate itself. So mm-hmm. in tissues where there's a big turnover of cells, like our dermis, you've got a selection for the mitochondria to be on side to help the host cells replace themselves, make more copies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. In cells that don't divide, there's nowhere to go to be more successful mm-hmm. for the mitochondria except to proliferate themselves and outcompete others inside that same bubble, okay. inside that same cell. So the cell's not dividing, it's sitting there, and at some point in time, uh, a mitochondrial variant pops up. Usually it's one that's missing part of its genome and can proliferate at a smaller size in more copies, but at the same time, isn't gonna provide the ATP, the energy function that the cell needs, and that leads to the cell death. So it's really, as I understand it, a matter of of, uh, cells dividing or not dividing. Mm -hmm. When cells are dividing, they're dividing you know, asexually making copies of themselves, the mitochondria that help their host cell as mm-hmm. a team player, they, they're the ones that uh, will be selected. And when tissues stop dividing, unfortunately, that's when the level of selection changes to within the cell rather mm-hmm. than between cells. Okay. Um, and now one last question on mitochondria uh, before we get to even more crazy stuff. What is mitochondrially caused cytoplasmic male sterility? Um, especially interested in plants. CMS, or cytoplasmic male sterility, is a phenomenon that occurs in plants primarily because plants are mostly hermaphrodites. They Mm -hmm. have male and female functions, either separate flowers that are female and male, or uh, female and male parts within the same flower. Mm -hmm. And producing pollen has a cost to it, a cost which does not benefit mitochondria in any way, shape, or form, because Mm -hmm. they don't get transmitted with that pollen to the stigma of a female flower somewhere else, and thus propagate themselves. So the mitochondria in this case rebel against the plant Mm -hmm. and uh, conspire to turn off pollen production. In doing so, they allow energy that would go into pollen production to be routed into uh, seed production, which is the female side of the equation, and produce more seed. That benefits the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. Now what's going to happen in those plant populations is that as the male function gets turned off and as this is favored and we get more and more female plants being uh, dominating this, the, the sex of the uh, population, mm-hmm. again, any plant that can correct for that function is going to have a bonanza because it's going to have the functional pollen where nobody else does, and it's going to be able to fertilize a whole bunch of female flowers, and thus any one that can correct for that deficiency, uh, any plant is going to spread and correct the situation, and you'll go back to having a, a roughly one-to-one sex ratio in terms of uh, gametes being produced. Wow. Uh, Well, I think I would be selling my podcast a little bit short if I didn't give my listeners one more biological doomsday device to worry about per episode. Um, So for that reason, thank you so much for talking about mitochondria, and thank you preemptively for your time, because, ladies and gentlemen, we're just getting started. Now that we're aware of mitochondria's wonderfully Marxist-slash-feminist-but-not-really-slash-all-men-must-die-but-not-really tendencies, uh, I would love to move towards mitochondria's more radical cousin, the bacteria Rickettsiales. Rickettsiales, yeah. Rickettsiales, the Wolbachia. Professor, what are Wolbachia, and in what ways do they relate to the mitochondria, Uh, and in what ways do they relate to your study of sex and evolution? Okay, so you said the Rickettsiales, and Mm -hmm. and that's that's first clue to this because mitochondria are in that in that family of Mm -hmm. bacteria. So mitochondria 
and did you mention Wolbachia already? Yes, I yes, did. and and Wolbachia. So I, I at the outset said that those are the two most successful parasites in the history of life on Earth. Mm. The mitochondria we've already spoken about. Each of our cells has uh, as many as two thousand mitochondria within a, within a cell. Mm. So mitochondria have been fabulously successful. Just you, Thor, sitting there. You have a few more mitochondria than me because you've got a few more inches of height than me. But uh, you know in the trillions, or I don't even know the number, the Googles or something mm -hmm. of mitochondria. So that, that former parasite has done wildly well. Wolbachia is a relative mitochondria that still functions mostly as a parasite, but we'll see that, uh, that the Wolbachia can also evolve into being a mutualist. Mm -hmm. They can go from being parasitic and virulent and spreading from one individual to another to actually helping the host in what, that they're infecting. But like the mitochondria, they have a real vested interest in female function and in the production of eggs, mm -hmm. and for exactly the same reason. Because Wolbachia are real uh, magicians, and the magic tricks that they play are really incredible, but one of them is that they're capable of both vertical and horizontal transmission. So vertical transmission, we all know about, we've talked about the, the mitochondrion mm -hmm. getting passed down from a mother to her daughters and her sons through the egg as part of the cytoplasm. And Wolbachia does exactly the same thing. But the magic trick here is that it can also spread itself horizontally. So it can go from one species to another species uh, with through means that we really don't even understand yet. And it doesn't even have to be a particularly closely related species. Mm -hmm. It can go from you know one species of insect to another species of insect to a nematode worm. Mm -hmm. uh, and I even recently learned of instances of Wolbachia in fish. Oh wow! And and uh, they pull some of the same tricks on fish that they do in the insects and other invertebrates. So that magic trick, horizontal transmission, is something that is hard to comprehend because no other disease that that I know of mm -hmm. is capable of getting itself from the body into the germline. Okay, we all have this sequestered germline. We have a separate separation between sperm and egg and the rest of the body where basically most pathogens can't get from, say, blood plasma into a testis or an ovary cell. Mm. But Wolbachia can do it. They can spread themselves. And one of the things about Wolbachia that makes it uh, such an obsession for me is that just within my lifetime, uh, it has spread in ways that directly affect my research. Mm. And that's why I first got interested in it, because I work on fruit flies as an evolutionary geneticist. Uh, you know, Back in the 90s when I was a grad student, that's when Wolbachia came on the radar. Mm -hmm. It came on the radar because people were starting to realize that when you took animals from the wild, you took uh, fruit flies from the wild, and you crossed them to lab fruit flies, you often saw a one-way sterilization effect. Mm -hmm. When males from the field are crossed to females from the lab, they couldn't make fertile eggs. Mm -hmm. So the females were becoming sterilized by mating with those males, and it turns out it's this this magician Wolbachia mm -hmm. that's doing its thing. And it's, it's, its thing in that case is purposely inducing sterility in females that receive sperm from males that are infected. And I don't know if you want me to go into the <laughs> oh, conditions where that spreads, but... Well, actually, um, <laughs> that, that's pretty well segueing into the next question I was going to ask you. Um, as I understand it, there are three main kinds of effects that Wolbachia can have on re reproduction which are cytoplasmic incompatibility, male killing and feminization, and then parthenogenesis. Um, and I was 
going to have you start, actually, with cytoplasmic incompatibility, asking, what is this? Uh, what does it mean? And how have we seen it uh, impact Drosophila populations? Yeah, the cytoplasmic incompatibility, uh, that, as I mentioned earlier, first came on the radar with me just because of, as a, as a nuisance, really, mm -hmm. because... Uh, People were concerned if you had stocks that were infected with Wolbachia, you could get some very, very weird experimental results. And so I took an interest in this. And as I learned a bit more about its biology, I became quite fascinated with it because I, uh, I've always been interested in sex differences, in conflict between the sexes. And here you see a conflict that's being brokered by a parasite, by an endosymbiont that moves from individual to individual, both vertically and horizontally. And what it, the trick, the first trick that you mentioned, cytoplasmic incompatibility, is the one that it, it plays on my organism, Drosophila. Uh, it also plays the same trick on thousands and thousands of other species of insects, of nematode worms, of various arthropods. It's a very widespread mm -hmm. phenomenon. So exciting for me because uh, that phenomenon uh, has happened within my lifetime. That has happened within the time that I've been doing research on this species. It's spread. We've watched it spread. And in some cases, we've watched it go from being a parasite to being a mutualist, in fact, over mm -hmm. the course of a couple of decades. And that's like evolution at warp speed, evolution in action in front of our eyes. Wow. So, so that's been very, very exciting. Uh, the, the cytoplasmic effect that uh, it has on males uh, is that when in Wolbachia is in the testes, it has a trick that it plays on the testis tissue that cause it to make defective sperm. So it does something weird to the proteins in the sperm that make them unable to fertilize eggs when they're transferred to females. Mm -hmm. So we think the Wolbachia is transmitted vertically, but it only transmits through the female. Why on earth would it be messing up male sperm? Well, the answer to that riddle is that the Wolbachia mess up the sperm but if a female receives messed up sperm from a male and she has Wolbachia as well, it's like the sperm are poisoned and she has the antidote to the poison. She's fertile. Mm -hmm. A female that does not have Wolbachia is incapable of fertilizing her eggs. She'll think she's fertilizing her eggs. She'll lay eggs until she mates with another male and those eggs will not hatch. So it basically punishes females who are not infected. And by punishing females that are not infected, it spreads itself very quickly through populations. Wow. So that's that's the first evil trick of Wolbachia. <laughs> yeah, um, and just to dive a, a little bit, a smidgen deeper into this, this wow, this trick, yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the only word I can think of. It's, yeah, um, you mentioned the word mutualist. Uh, what happens when Wolbachia are removed from these populations where mutualism evolves? Yeah, I mean, so uh, well, it's, it's crazy, but Wolbachia, in some instances, when it, it's been shown to infect females, it has a detrimental impact. Okay, it has a cost on the host when it first infects. It can reduce the female's ability to lay eggs by 10, 15, 20 percent mm -hmm. in the work that I'm familiar with. And so that's a huge cost to the females in terms of their Darwinian fitness. Mm -hmm. The Wolbachia, however, evolve, can evolve to localize themselves around two specific kinds of tissues, around the ovaries, well, three, I guess, the ovaries, the testes, mm -hmm. and brain tissue. Okay. And so that's, the, that's where you find them in the insect, is around the ovaries. And they have, in at least one case, in Drosophila simulans, taken populations where they were initially quite harmful and reduced female fertility, 
20 years down the road, those females are actually producing more offspring in the presence of Wolbachia than in the absence. And you can get at that question because of bacteria, because you can use antibiotics to get mm -hmm. rid of them. And you can get at that, that problem because you can look at flies that were captured from the wild before Wolbachia spread, as well as flies that have been co-evolving with the parasite for a decade or two. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, that's one instance. In other species, I mean, there are whole groups of insects where there are no males. Mm -hmm. So there are no, no males in those populations. And it turns out that that's because uh, Wolbachia has had the ability to basically snuff out the males and make themselves necessary for female parthenogenetic reproduction, so male-free reproduction. And mm -hmm. if you cure some of those species, they become sterile. They're dependent utterly on the Wolbachia. Wow. So those are a couple of instances. Crazy. And it's crazy how good you are at predicting my next question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the next question I was going to ask is with regards to the ever out of reach dream that is male killing and feminization. What do feminizers do and how do they do it? Well, so Wolbachia gets rid of males in two ways. Mm -hmm. One is it converts them. So it reassigns their gender for them, if you like. Uh, those ones, uh, the Wolbachia mimic the effects of sex chromosomes. Wow. And so the Wolbachia actually produce substances that mimic hormones that cause genetically male individuals to grow up as females. And those will be good females producing eggs, uh, fertilizable by males, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the Wolbachia has now just found a way to get itself out of that dead end, which is, oh crap, I'm stuck in a male <laughs> and I've got nowhere to go because I'm just gonna die with that male. Mm -hmm. So why not turn the male into a female? Wow. So that's that's one of the tricks now. Um, so that that's reassigning sex to the individual. Uh, another way that they have been able to do that is truly remarkable, is the actual DNA of Wolbachia has gone from the, the bacterium into the genome of the host and now acts as a sex chromosome. Wow. So there's some pill bug species where this happens. Mm. And so now they've got actually three ways of determining sex and, and about two, two to one sex ratio, female to male, because there are females the old way with the, with the bug sex chromosome. Mm. There are the nouveau females that have Wolbachia sex chromosomes, but are otherwise male. And wow. that turns half the males into females. But the more direct way to snuff out males is literally to snuff them out. <laughs> And so this is one of the amazing tricks that Wolbachia has. Um, in some species, it uh, can, can terminate development of males midway, so the larvae are growing. Uh, and then Wolbachia have a way to, the, the, the genetics of, that I know of, uh, attack the male's X chromosome and uh, kill that male in a lethal apoptosis, so programmed cell death. Mm -hmm. Now, the Wolbachia do that for two reasons and at two stages. They do that early to the males if it's simply a matter of competition. So you get rid of the male competition and guess who gets more resources from a limited resource pool? Their sisters. Mm -hmm. And so that can favor the Wolbachia that are in their sisters. So that there the bacteria are committing suicide in the male to help their sisters increase in greater to greater numbers. Dare I say group selection? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, group selection. No, that's kin selection. Uh -huh. This is you're okay. helping your kin. And uh, uh, they can also kill males later on. 
and they particularly do that in cannibalistic species. Mm -hmm. So they kill males once they're plump and juicy and big larvae or pupae, and then the males are killed. The females will consume the males, and in some species that gives those females a real competitive advantage when they when they take off and try to reproduce as adults. Wow. I, I don't know if you mentioned, but I think ladybugs are the example of that that was used. Ladybugs are the best example of that, but partly I think that's because ladybugs are the, the most studied, um, mm. and that, that's because one of the people that really opened up this territory uh, outside of Drosophila was uh, a fellow named Mike Majerus, mm. uh, who uh, he wrote a book called Sex Wars that had a big impact on me. I, you recommend so many books in your course that I've been, I've been going along, and I bought the one that's Sex Advice to All Creation, but I haven't even gotten to that yet. And then I, in one of the lectures, you're like, this book sells are really good. Yeah, yeah. Oof. Okay. Do Dr. Tatiana. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Olivia Judson. She's amazing. Shout out. Last, but certainly not finally, <laughs> parthenogenesis. And for those at, don't, at home who don't make a career out of spewing long words, what is parthenogenesis? How do Wolbachia induce it? And what is a zesty example of this having happened? So I think I, the root of parthenogenesis, I believe it means virgin birth mm -hmm. uh, in Greek. I think. Oh. Uh, and uh, parthenogens are, are females that don't require males for reproduction. So they're capable of uh, essentially going through the cell divisions of meiosis, but uh, no sperm are required. And uh, that means either the offspring are clones of their mom or the offspring are not clones that, because they've gone through recombination process, but they're obviously all pieces of their mom in different combos. Mm -hmm. So they're two different kinds of parthenogenesis. Uh, you know, that, that's uh, a process which Wolbachia induces in quite a large number of species that were believed to be parthenogenetic on their own, for their own reasons, and not a parasitic bacterium. Uh, so in, in some of the, the um, thrip species of insects, uh, many crustaceans, in a number of nematode worms, uh, the uh, Wolbachia induce parthenogenesis and basically become absolutely integral to the reproductive process of those females. Wow. And um, I remember vaguely <laughs> from, from the lecture notes that there was an example of eliminating those parthenogenetic bacteria from, from a species and seeing that even if they were genetically males, they were incapable of performing as functional males because they had been so far co-evolved with, with Wolbachia that they had no longer could, could function. Their genes had accumulated too many mutations. Yeah, exactly. The, the male genes are not being used, perhaps for thousands or hundreds of thousands of years since the Wolbachia infected them and made the females parthenogens. Mm -hmm. So that male equipment gets rusty. That male equipment uh, accumulates mutations, becomes dysfunctional. So those male-specific genes, because they're not being selected upon, because they're not being used evolutionarily, they just come into disrepair. And you can try to recover males, but you'll either get infertile, infertile males or mm. um, arrested development of the embryos. Okay, so thank you. Uh, and finally, before I thank you for your time and send all of us on our way, I noted in one of your lectures that, and in, again in this, uh, in, this, in this episode, that unlike most parasites uh, there, which closely track the phylogeny of their host, Wolbachia can transmit horizontally, was it, uh, between insects and nematodes, for example. Yep. Um, so being honest, does this mean that I should stop romancing butterflies? <laughs> stop romancing butterflies. <laughs> yes. Is there anything for me to be worried about there? Um, I'm not even sure how to respond to that. <laughs> okay. But uh, butterflies... Maybe the better question is, are humans ever at any risk of Wolbachia? Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, did, I just missed the question altogether. Oh, okay. um, 
Are humans at risk of Wolbachia? I, I don't know. I wouldn't put anything past this parasite. It's, uh, as I say, it's, it's spreading in front of our eyes. As biologists, we're seeing more and more species infected with Wolbachia, so it's becoming more and more widespread. And I've learned of the first instance, um, at least the first instance I was aware of, I'm aware of, is uh, now in a vertebrate, is in fishes. Mm -hmm. So who knows what this thing will be doing, you know, in a few hundred years. I think you're probably safe, Thor, with probably. your butterfly romancing. <laughs> <laughs> One last, more uh, theoretical question that maybe isn't even a question we should be asking at all. Um, one one thing that this is perhaps a, a long long thread to pull for this question, but Margaret Atwood's *Handmaid's Tale*, the the foundational idea of it is uh, male sterility is skyrocketing, and as a consequence, society has to base itself around making babies. Uh, in these really weird ways. Would you, and the justification she used for imagining that society was, I believe her time in Russia, she found out that there was some research going into mass sterilization. And of course, that's been seen multiple times throughout history in different, different means. Do you think that Wolbachia could ever be harnessed to do something as terrifying as using mass sterility? I don't think it could ever be harnessed for those purposes in humans. I okay. don't think it, in mammals in general. I'm very doubtful. It could still surprise me, but uh, it is being used in that way today mm -hmm. in a multi-billion dollar industry to kill and sterilize uh, organisms. Mm -hmm. And that is specifically in, in aid of biocontrol of infectious diseases. Okay. So it turns out that Wolbachia, in addition to being rather selfish in its own transmission and so on, is pretty selfish about its uh, time within the host that it occupies. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that Wolbachia seems to have the also magical ability to exclude other bacteria, mm -hmm. to exclude uh, certain kinds of parasites like plasmodium, the parasite that causes malaria, mm -hmm. as well as various viruses, and especially this is a group called the arboviruses because they're carried by arthropods like insects. So there are lots of examples of this, yellow fever, West Nile, mm -hmm. dengue, Zika. That's where a lot of the hot research is going on, is trying to use the introduction of Wolbachia into populations uh, of, say, um, Nile mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Wolbachia then can have various effects. It can cause, well, all the things we talked about, male killing, it can cause uh, also uh, more rapid mortality. Mm -hmm. Some of these diseases need a long time to incubate in their hosts. And if you can get them to die faster but produce more eggs earlier, mm -hmm. that can invade and that can get rid of the uh, parasite. Uh, in the case of um, dengue fever, uh, Zika, it seems like Wolbachia just does not like to share the uh, mosquito host with those diseases. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty effective at keeping those diseases out of those hosts, which means that if you use Wolbachia's tricks to get it propagated, it's going to be very happy. It's got a new host. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, taking Wolbachia out of fruit flies and injecting Wolbachia into the eggs of uh, like Aedes aegypti, the mosquito, uh, you can infect those individuals and you can create the Wolbachia, which if you've ever heard of a gene drive system, I haven't. Well, some sort of like a, a domino effect, right? That's how okay. Wolbachia does it. Again, it, it's, it, it punishes females that are not infected. Mm -hmm. Female mosquitoes are the ones that bite humans, mm -hmm. and they transmit dengue and yellow fever and chikungunya and Zika and all those diseases. So if you can get uh, a Wolbachia into a population of mosquitoes and it's exclusive of those viruses, you can actually get it to spread like wildfire by wow. punishing females that are not 
infected and uh, drive those disease frequencies down. There's a really nice example of that in northern Australia, where it seems to have been incredibly effective against dengue. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your time and information. And thank you, everyone at home, for tuning in to this episode of Biology Bobbles. Uh, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. And uh, you have a wonderful rest of your quarantine days. Yeah. So, Thor, um, yes. <clears throat> you might want to check this out because I just found this while I was looking up, you know, Wabakia in the mm -hmm. news and stuff like that. There's a guy, uh, there's a lab in uh, Townsville, Australia, mm -hmm. where they've eliminated dengue using Wabakia. And... The, the, the story went viral on, uh, on Twitter because the guy feeds all of his mosquitoes with his own blood. Oh. Yeah. Huh. So he, he feeds like 5,000, 10,000 mosquitoes in a day with each, each of his arms. Uh, and you could just <laughs> see this just Oof. covered thousands of mosquito bites. I hope he gets some kind of immunity. I know once I, once I came back from tree planting, mosquito bites never, never hit me the same way. But once you're donating that much blood... A true hero, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, milliliters. Of I mean, and so if you're if you're afraid of uh, romancing butterflies and getting Wolbachia, <laughs> this is a researcher that puts his arm into cages filled with Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes Oof. on a daily basis. Oof. Too much for me. Yeah. Wow. Normally they use rats and mice. They shave, <laughs> they shave the bellies and just put them on the cages, but. Save the... This guy likes oh, 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 oh my goodness. I was thinking, I, I had flashbacks to that scene in Game of Thrones with the... I thought you were talking about the researchers shaving their bellies. Uh, I, I was about the mice feeding on them. Whew. Science hasn't gone too far. In this regard, I think I think we're doing a good job. Already. All right. Anyway, um, with my outro having been done, uh, I'll leave this podcast off with a slightly more Irish goodbye. Have a great day. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Hey.